Section 13 of Sermons to Children by Sabine Baring Gould. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Sermon 13. Self-Respect. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Every virtue, if carried too far, becomes a fault. A great writer of antiquity said that virtue consisted in moderation, and he spoke the truth. Liberality in excess becomes extravagance. Economy when too pinching is miserliness. Justice untempered is harsh, and excessive mercy lapses into injustice. Too great humility is as objectionable as too great self-esteem. A person may be so timid of himself, so weak-spirited, as never to be capable of undertaking any good, and may spend his life in a cringing moral cowardice, which is truly despicable. The reverse of this is self-esteem. This in excess is pride, and pride is a mortal sin. But self-respect is a duty. Self-respect and pride have much in common, but they differ often as to the object which inspires them. Pride is self-respect as long as it refers to those things a man has, and is moderate in amount. But very often a man is proud of that which he has not got. You generally will find a man most conceited about what he is most deficient in. There are several reasons, children, why we should cultivate self-respect. In the first place, we are made after the image of God. God has given us, what he has denied to the beasts, a free will and a divine soul. We are partakers of God's nature. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He stood on his feet, and something in himself told him that there was a God above him who had made him. The power in you to believe in God is the soul. The religious instinct which makes you turn to God, pray to God, trust in God, is the breath of God within you, the little spark of the divine nature lodged in your breasts. The beast and bird do not think of God, because they have no souls. They go through their allotted course, do what their instincts tell them to do, without a thought of their creator, any more than a clock, or a railway engine, or a steamboat has of its maker. But with you it is quite different. The little child looks up to God, and can love and trust him. It believes in him without an effort, and this is because of the soul within, which comes from God and turns to God. You were made in the image of God. Now what does that mean? First it means that you have spirit. God is a spirit. The animal, when it dies, ceases to be, but your spirit can live without a body. And at the resurrection, your bodies will be raised spiritual, that is, they will be able to do that which only spirits can now do, and go where only spirits can go now. Then again, God is eternal, and you are born to eternity. There never will be a time when you will not be. Thousands of years will pass, but you will still exist. Then again, God is a creator. He makes things out of nothing. He calls into existence things that were not. We, to some extent, partake in his creative power. We have a gift in us called the imagination, by means of which we can call up out of nothing forms that are not, and by various means give them a sort of actual existence. For instance, a painter or a sculptor forms an idea in his head, and he carries it out in a picture or a statue. A musician creates a beautiful melody and gives it existence by singing it and playing it on the piano. 
another invents a story and calls up all sorts of persons and scenes and creates all sorts of incidents and situations, and in a book gives them a sort of real existence. Now, of course, these are all very inferior sorts of creation, but no doubt, after the resurrection, we shall be able to create as God creates, and one of the delights of eternity will be the delight of creating. You see, we are partakers of the divine nature, sons of God, made in the image of God. Is not that a great reason for respecting ourselves? But there is another reason. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. Each one of us is ransomed by his precious blood. For our sakes, because he loved and esteemed us, he took human nature upon him. He was born of Mary, went about doing good, working miracles, was betrayed, deserted, condemned, crucified. He saw that men, the noblest work of God, were being lost. They were straying from the right way, having no guide, they were going against the will of God, through ignorance, not knowing that will. He so esteemed the human nature which God had created, that he came from heaven, and took it upon him to restore it to its dignity, to bring it back to obedience, and into the right path. He made himself of no reputation, and took on him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, that he might free us from the bondage of sin, restore to us the reputation we had forfeited, and sanctify our frail flesh. And once more, you will live forever in body and soul. Your bodies will be raised and made glorious, like unto Christ's glorious body, no more to see corruption. Now you receive your bodies for a little while. They grow and become old and decay, but you will receive your bodies again once more. You will wake up after Christ's likeness, endowed with strength, health, youth, and glory. No more shall they wax old, no more suffer pain, no more languish with want. They shall retain ever the bloom of youth. The soul which is now feeble and timorous will grow strong and confident. You have carried a light through a drafty passage, sheltering it behind your hand. It flickers, it seems almost extinguished. Now and then it starts up and casts a little gleam about it, and then scarce maintains its existence. Presently you come into a room, and then it burns brightly and steadily, and fills the apartment with light. Now you are carrying your feebly fluttering, flickering soul through the passage of life. It is subjected to drafts on all sides, seeking to extinguish it. But if you only succeed in saving your soul alive, in keeping that vital spark of heavenly flame burning, when you enter the house of heaven, the mansion prepared for you, it will shine forth steadily and with a glorious luster. Your mind will also live forever. The mind of the animal cleaves to the earth. It thinks of, it cares for, only what will keep it alive, its eating and drinking and warmth and comfort. But the mind of man is not satisfied with thinking of these things only. It searches out the mysteries of creation. It meditates on the marvels of grace. It watches the unfolding plans of God in history. It seeks the evidence everywhere of the laws which he has imposed on all that he has made. It is ever restless, going through nature to find nature's God. We seem never to come to the end of the wonders of creation. The thoughts of God are very deep, and as God is infinite, his thoughts are infinite, and we never shall see to the end of all his doings. But in all eternity our minds will be active, and will grow, and never be wearied with watching, exploring, and discovering more of God's wisdom and wondrous works. Now, 
I have given you three reasons why every man should hold himself in respect. Firstly, because he is made in the image of God. Secondly, because he has been redeemed by Christ. Lastly, because he is an heir of immortality. When I say that you should maintain self-respect, I mean that you should remember the dignity which is yours as a child of God, redeemed by Christ, and an heir of heaven, and never act unworthily of your origin and privilege and prospects. When the Prince of Wales, the son of King Henry the Fourth, spent his time in taverns, drinking and rioting with dissolute companions, getting into disreputable scrapes, and generally misconducting himself, he was rebuked for want of self-respect. He, with the blood royal flowing in his veins, and with the crown before him, did not walk worthy of his high calling and future prospects. You have something even better than royal blood in your veins. You have a spark of a divine soul in your bosoms, and you have the hope of inheriting not an earthly, but an eternal kingdom. Therefore conduct yourselves irreproachably, uprightly, worthily of your high vocation in Christ Jesus. It was a custom among the ancient Romans for a son to bear, hung round his neck, a piece of silver or gold on which was stamped his father's image. It was thought a great honor thus to be adorned. There was a family illustrious for its virtues and the greatness of the great men it had reared. This was the family of Scipios. At last there came a young Scipio, who forgot the dignity of his family and the nobility of the name he bore, and disregarded the example of his father. He behaved so badly and unworthily that the Senate of Rome decreed that the seal of his father should be taken from him, as he was unworthy to bear his father's image and name on his bosom. A Christian bears the image of his father and redeemer and great example, not on his breast, but in his heart, not stamped on silver or gold, but written deeply in the fleshly tables of his heart. He is bound to behave as a Christian, to walk worthy of his heavenly Father, and to follow the example of his Savior. If he does not, he forfeits his right to be called a Christian. The Lord, says St. Paul, knoweth them that are his. How think you? By their conduct, by their self-respect. If they know that they are his by creation and redemption, and that they hope to be his in all eternity, then they will live as becomes Christians. They will avoid all unseemly words and acts, they will seek in everything to maintain their honor as Christians. They will try to fulfill the will of God, for they are his sons. They will use this world and not abuse it, knowing that their true life and perfect condition will be hereafter. Their souls will long for heaven, for their God, whose breath they are. Their flesh will yearn for the resurrection, when it will shake off its infirmities, and their minds will desire the sight of God, when they will attain to perfect knowledge. End of section 13.